It's a joy to be here uh, with you this morning. That's how I feel. I hope you feel the same way. Uh, and again, a warm welcome to any guests in our midst. It's a pleasure to welcome, to welcome you to our campus this morning. And congrats to any parents who made it here as well. I know getting kids out of the house on a rainy day is not easy. We're going to continue uh, today in a sermon series about our vision here at Christ the King. And what is our vision? Here's how we put it. We are striving to be a community of Christ followers being changed by God in order to serve the world. Those are great words. Those are biblical words. They're words that you'll read on the front page of our website. And I pray and I hope that they are words which will describe what is happening in and with and through us here at Christ the King. Last week, we focused in on the middle part of that vision statement, the part that says being changed by God. We looked at the story of Isaiah encountering God in the temple, very profound moment, and we use that to think about what it means to be changed by God. This week, we're going to zoom in on the first part of our vision statement, the part about community, the part that says we're striving to be a community of Christ followers, and that's a beautiful thing. That's what we want to dwell on this morning, but before we do that, let me pray. Lord, as your scripture has been opened for us this morning, send your spirit to open our hearts to receive it. May we do that with gratitude. May we inwardly digest it. May we be nourished by it. And through that, may you make us one in Christ. Amen. In thinking about what it means to be a community of Christ followers, we're going to look at the first part of the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians which Freesha just read for us. If you spent time in Philippians, uh, you'll know this. If you haven't, that's fine. You're going to be spending some time in it this morning with me. Uh, the New Testament book of Philippians has been described as a journey into joy. It's a letter where Paul talks about learning to be content no matter what circumstances he finds himself in. It's a book where he speaks of having his joy made complete, and that's appealing. Is there anybody in the room who does not want that? Yet here's something really fascinating. This book of the Bible might alternatively be titled, How a Guy in Prison with Nothing Can Be Happier Than the Average American Who Has Everything. Not quite as snappy, I know, but there's a lot of truth in it. After all, to read Philippians is to explore how it is that a Jewish guy in chains, a guy fastened to the wall in a Roman prison, can be happier and more full of joy than most of us will ever know. And what is the source of that joy? A big part of the answer is the body of Christ, the church, the people of God, Paul's participation in a community of Christ followers. And that's exactly what God wants for us too. So let's think about what that involves. Here's a question. Have you ever read a love letter? For those of you who are under 30... A love letter is kind of like an email or a text, except you would send it through USPO or perhaps by FedEx overnight if the relationship was in trouble. And reading a love letter can be one of the most wonderful experiences a person can have. It can melt your heart. It can energize you. You always remember it. And here's a related question. Have you ever read a love letter that was not written to you? Moment of truth. That's a trick question. Because if you've ever read Philippians, then you have indeed read a love letter. It was not written directly to you, however, but it is still a love letter that's got something to say to you. 
Paul's language in this book of the New Testament is exploding with warmth and affection and tenderness. Truly, this is a letter of love, and it was written not just to a single person, but to a community. And the love that it's filled with is not just emotional, it's also theological. It teaches us what it means to be a community of Christ followers. So what are the particular elements or aspects of this kind of community, this distinct form of relationships that Paul writes about? This is a big part of his joy. Let me put it like this. Christian community, based on what Paul says here in Philippians 1, it's something that exists where people, people like you and me, share a common foundation and share a common affection and share a common calling and share a common vision. Those are the four key ingredients to being a community of Christ followers. So let's briefly explore each of those four ingredients this morning. Let's start with the common foundation. One of the things that you see when you look at humanity, not just Christians, but humanity at large, one of the things that you might say makes us human is that we all long for community and for relationship. It's like we were built for it, built and created to have brothers and sisters, friends, lovers, companions. That's why we've got our tribes, our people. You see this all over the place. The feminists have their sisterhood. The terrorists have their brotherhood. Fraternity and sorority members have their frat bros and their big sisses. Uh, truck drivers have their unions. Architects have the Rubble Club. You ever heard of that? This is kind of a sad one. Members of the Rubble Club are architects who live to see some of the buildings they designed get intentionally destroyed within their lifetimes. Heartbreaking for an architect. It comes to this. We can experience community in a range of human activities, labor groups, sports teams, political organizations, social clubs, the list could go on and on and on. But here's the thing, most of the time, the foundations for our groups, the foundations for our different human communities are just skin deep. They're based on surface affinities. You share a common interest, you've got a, a hobby in common, you've got a common concern, you've got your sights set on a common enemy. Or maybe you just have a common cultural or socioeconomic or educational background. The point is, most of the time, human communities are built on factors that are quite surfacy and quite skin deep. Moreover, and if I'm going to be completely honest, we've got to say that the church, a lot of the time, can be that way too. We can shop churches based on social demographics, whether we like the organ or whether we want the guitar and the tambourines. We can be really consumeristic about all of it which is why many of our churches can just be reflections of everyday social patterns. They're filled with people who act alike and dress alike and talk alike and vote alike or think alike on whatever the social issues of the day may be. Birds of a feather, as they say. When this happens, we take part in a form of community that's just like what the world offers and not the community that God has in mind. Because God wants us to be united to one another in a fundamentally different mode of relationship than what the world otherwise offers. That is what St. Paul teaches today. Look at verse 7. Paul is writing, he's saying, I hold you in my heart with deep affection. And guess what? That is not because Paul shared a common background or had common interest with these people. Paul was a very well-educated chap. He was a Jewish Pharisee scholar. He's someone who knew the law of God inside and out. He got a 1600 on his SAT. In sharp contrast, 
The Christians in Philippi were poor Gentiles. They weren't Jewish. They had low education levels. They had very little in common with St. Paul. Let me put it like this. If Paul liked to play chess, then these, these guys liked to go to Myrtle Waves. They had very little in common except one thing. They all shared in the grace of God. We share together in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's how Paul puts it. They have all had an experience of God's grace, and so they are profoundly bonded to one another. Common shared experiences can do this to us. Have you ever been stuck in an elevator with people? I have. It happened up in Toronto, Canada about 15 or 20 years ago. The elevator was definitely overloaded. And so as we got on the left to go up to the hotel dining room, it ground to a halt between two floors. And that's where it stayed for several hours. And let's just say that all of us, myself, plus 13 other people, it did look like that. We got real close and personal. There was some claustrophobia. There were some tears. There were laughs. There were mysteries. Where'd that smell come from? There was sharing snacks, sharing water, and through this little dramatic incident, we bonded. And when we finally got off of that darn lift, the first thing we did was plan a reunion. We made a meal for the next day up in the hotel dining room, except we all took the steps. And then we set up a Facebook group, and we still get together every five years. It's called the SES, Survived Elevator Society. You can join if you want. Experiences can and do bond. And what Paul is saying is that we have a shared, we've all experienced a shared dramatic redemptive event. We have shared in the death and resurrection of Christ, Romans 6, 3. We have been crucified in Christ, becoming dead to our sins, set free, raised to new life. We have crossed over from death to life, 1 John 3. That has happened to us. We are all in a little salvation elevator and it's never going to be the same again. Now, how does that cash out? What does that mean for you today? It means that the foundation of Christian community, of an authentic church, the foundation of this church, I hope, is going to be nothing but the grace of God. That's the foundation. It's not a common cultural or ethnic background. It's not a common social class or common party politics or common educational levels. It's none of that. It's the grace of Christ. And by the way, this means that we have more in common with a Christian who is of a totally different race and class and social status and education level than someone who is not a Christian but perhaps shares all of those things with us. That's what that means. So can we seek to foster this kind of community here, grounded in the grace of Christ as opposed to the fact that we like the same team or we've got common interest? Let's move on. Second core ingredient of uh, community of Christ's followers is common affections. I love this one. Look at the scripture. In verse four, 4, Paul says, I pray for you with joy. In verse 7, he says, I hold you in my heart. In verse 8, I yearn for you. This guy's writing a love letter. Normally, we don't say those types of things to people unless we're related to them or unless we're dating them, but Paul is just saying it to everybody in the church. And what he says, all of this affection bears witness to the fact that the word church does not chiefly refer to a building but to a family. It doesn't chiefly refer to a building, but it refers rather to a family. Is there anyone in the room today that you could go up to after this service, besides a 
a spouse or a family member or a girlfriend and say, my friend, I have longed for you with the affection of Jesus. Marie, I have longed for you with the affection of Jesus. You might freak them out. Sorry if I just freaked you out. Even so, that's how we ought to feel, but you can vocalize it in different ways. Don't worry. In ancient times, when you became a Christian, it often meant that you were severed from your biological family. And by the way, that still happens to a lot of Christians in the world today. You lose your biological family. You get disowned. But you weren't just severed because when you became a Christian, you also got a new family. Let me put it like this. According to Jesus, to become a Christian is to be reborn into a new family, a new spiritual family. And that spiritual family, as the New Testament tells us over and over again, that's the one that's the most important. That's the one that's going to be the most enduring. And so we begin to see how St. Paul, a single man who had no family, could speak with such love and affection to all these folks in Philippi because he knew he was going to be with them forever. So what does this say to us today? Several things. If you're single, if your biological family is broken... In Christ, I want you to know that you're not just being offered a Savior, but you're also being offered a new family. And it's not a second-rate family. It's a family in which you can experience the same type of love and joy and affection that St. Paul displays here. And let me add something to that. For those of us who are blessed to have fairly healthy, fairly affectionate marriages, families, uh, Paul's words to us are a call not to make that into an idol. You see the people in the room today? Look around. Look around. You're going to be together a long time, eternity. And so we need to be giving one another the kind of affectionate investment that we all need to flourish. That's key. So when you call someone brother or sister here at Christ the King, don't just do it because you can't remember their name. (laughs) Do it because it's true. On we go. Third key ingredient is our common calling. Here's one way to describe this. In our love for one another, it's a shared purpose that unites us. And that remains true despite any setbacks and challenges we're going to face together, despite unexpected twists and turns. And you've had some of those over the last three or four years. In verse 5, Paul is saying that the Christians in Philippi are partners with him in the great task of the spread of the gospel. And when Paul writes about partnership, he's not talking about a financial joint venture. He's talking about the way that a group of people, a group like us, participate and cooperate with one another for the sake of the gospel. That's our shared calling. Now, how does this shared calling play out here and now on Polly's Island? Think about it like this. Our task as a community of Christ followers is not simply to try to raise good Christian children. Oh, no, that's not big enough. And our task as a community here is not simply to have a church with pretty good attendance and a pretty good stable budget. That's not big enough either. Our common calling, according to Paul, is nothing less than to participate in God's mission to heal and redeem this world. Jesus Christ came to die for our sin, to take our judgment on himself. And now through the Holy Spirit, Christ is renewing all things and we are called to take part. You are called to take part. Y'all are called to take part. We are called to be participants, not just spectators. Now, you might be saying to yourself, okay, pastor, but I could barely get to church this morning. Getting the kids dressed left me completely exhausted. 
the car wouldn't start, or there was a crisis, someone called from work and my stress went off the charts, or there was a meltdown because we ran out of Cheerios. So how on earth can I possibly participate in this great mission? I don't have enough to do it. If that's how you feel, don't stress. Paul preached and ministered and traveled, but that's not all that the Christians in Philippi did. Lots of them did other things. Some of them just prayed, even though you should never use the word just in front of the word prayer. Some of them were called to full-time ministry. Some of them were called to different sorts of work where they could express that purpose, to raise kids, boys and girls who would become radical followers of Jesus, or to bring the grace of Christ into debased and dehumanizing workplaces, or just to do honest work instead of being a swindler or taking advantage of people. The point is this, we're all in partnership together, and that partnership can involve all sorts of different tasks and activities, and when we do that partnership together, it creates the most amazing shoulder-to-shoulder friendship. And so a good question to ask ourselves is this, do you see each other merely as church pals or as partners together in the mission of God? Do you see each other like Helen Keller saw Annie Sullivan as somebody she couldn't do without? Do you see each other like Batman sees Robin? I'm not going to be able to whip those baddies without your help, my fellow caped friend. Let's look now at the final ingredient of Christian community, a common vision. Look at verses 9 through 11. Paul, in these verses, is talking out loud about what he's been praying about. And here's what he says. He said, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what's excellent, so that you might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, so that you might be filled with righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Amen. In short, Paul is asking that the Philippian Christians would become more and more like Christ, come to resemble Him more and more. And there's something really interesting in all this. What is it? Let me tell you. Even though Paul is so, so pleased with the Philippians because they've been living for God, they've been doing the mission, they've been caring for him, even though he's so, so pleased, he envisions more for them, more love, more wisdom, more fruit of the Spirit. And so he continues to pray for and to yearn for and to root for their becoming more like Jesus Christ. And this teaches us, and here's something you really want to pay attention to, this teaches us that the journey of the gospel is twofold. On the one hand, it's an external journey. The gospel is going to go and extend out into the world, out into Polly's Island. But it's also an internal journey to see the gospel extend into my soul so that I become more and more like Jesus, and so do you. Verses 9 through 11 are talking about that internal journey. They're speaking about a profound growth in love and wisdom and the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul is longing for the Philippians to get further down that road. He is crying out to God for that to happen. And by the way, how does this happen? It's not a me and Jesus type thing. It's more of an us and Jesus project. Because while the internal journey, and listen really carefully to this, while the internal journey is deeply personal, it's not private. While it's deeply personal, it's not private. It is something we do together. It's a hallmark of being a community of Christ followers. Now, at this point, it's important to acknowledge that relationships are difficult and messy, especially relationships in the church. Why? Because we're broken people. We're all carrying around wounds and aches and psychoses. We're sin sick, as the Bible puts it. 
That's why there's conflict in church sometimes. Hopefully it will never look like that in here, though. And when that happens, this is what often and easily happens. You see people, you get to know the mess in their lives, and what do you do? You start looking for another church. That's what we're prone to do. Start looking for another community. By the way, if you think you find the perfect church, don't join it because you will ruin it. Okay? In contrast, Paul is encouraging us to have a vision for each other's greatness, just like he had for the Philippians' greatness. It's often only when we see the worst in other people that we really begin to pray with fervor for them, pray to see them grow, to mature, to become the human beings God created them to be. Legend has it that someone once asked the famous Italian sculptor Michelangelo how he sculpted the statue David. I didn't put the bottom half of David on the picture on purpose. If you want to know what that looks like, go home and do it on Google. And in answering that question, they said, how did you, you make David, Michelangelo? And answering that question, he said, you know what? I just looked at the block of marble and I took away all the parts that weren't David. Everybody's a block of marble. Michelangelo saw a David. And that is what we're called to be doing for one another in the church, which means, by the way, that the church is not a museum where finished products sit around in all their perfection and splendor. Our perfect families, our perfect lives, my perfect kids that don't exist, our perfect marriages, our perfect bodies. It's a myth. None of that's true. Let us not perpetuate that myth in this church. You see, the church is more like a sculptor studio. It's a place where we are blocks of marble strewn about and where we are co-laboring with God to see one another become the Davids that we were created to be. Now, how does that play out in our lives here and now? Let me give you one personal example of what this kind of sculpting work can look like. A couple years ago, there was an email exchange between myself and some friends, and in one of the emails that I wrote back to the group, I made a snide remark. One of my friends didn't ignore it. He called me, and he called me out. He told me off, as they'd say in England. But here's how he did it. He said, I don't know why you did that, Roger, because that wasn't you. You're better than that, because you have the living Christ inside you. In other words, he didn't just see me as I am, but as I could become. And that's what we're called to do for each other. We're called to root for each other to admonish each other, to cheer for each other, uh, longing to see each other become the Davids, those beautiful, perfect Davids that God has created all of us to be. And by the way, we're called to do all that with huge patience, with huge forbearance, and with huge graciousness. So to sum up, the Christian community is built on a common foundation, is animated by common affections, it's grounded in a common calling, And we are united around a common vision of transformation, a burning desire to see one another become more like Jesus. You may have stopped writing love letters long ago, but my prayer is this, that we would each begin to write a love letter, even if not literally, but metaphorically, to write a love letter to this community. Look around. These are the people that we've been called into community and into mission with, to journey with, to serve, to love, to mutually support so that Christ would blaze forth in all of our lives and by God's grace through us out and around Polly's Island.
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.